0: or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Man, uh, that's my jam, what a great song. Uh, holy, 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 perfect in power, um, love and purity. What an amazing God uh, that we get to know, it's pretty cool. If you heard last week, um, we uh, covered a very small portion of Mark 10, just four verses. Uh, This week, we're going to do something pretty different and cover a whole bunch more. Um, And so we're going to get the back half of chapter 10, uh, verses 32 through 52 this week. And we're going to work through all of it. And I'll give you a little bit of a uh, layout of what we're going to be doing. We'll work through all of it, kind of making some comments throughout. Um, It's three different sections. And you can read about all of them, uh, kind of a parallel in Matthew 20. Luke 18 has two of them. And what we're going to do when I'm preparing to, like, teach on three kind of different sections, it's a little tricky because I I don't kind of just want to be like, okay, message one, message two, message three. So uh, as I was spending time with these passages, I just kind of felt overwhelmed by this, uh, by, by an, attribute of God, an attribute of God that shone through so clearly. Um, in, in all three, I just saw this representation of God's amazing humility. And what a... What a powerful part of who the God of that the created the universe, who is almighty, who's holy, 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 uh, to be a humble and loving king. And I think it's such an important attribute for us to take on is if we're going to embrace the gospel and be a part of this kingdom of God that Jesus came to establish is to take on that kind of humility. You might be sitting here this morning and you might be like, Ryan, like I already got humility squared away, I'm the most humble person I've ever met, I think probably on planet Earth, I'm so glad you're here this morning. So uh, hopefully it's helpful. At the end of each of the three sections, I got a little bit of a bottom line for how humility is expressed or not expressed in that uh, section, and then at the end, just kind of a bit of a takeaway, some thoughts on um, humility. So if you're using the bulletin or the FBC app notes, uh, you can follow along with those uh, bottom lines as well. Um, I I have to say something before we go on. Um, I, lo- I love Barry so much, first of all. He's, he's a great guy. We've been friends for a long time. Actually, um, m- maybe it's weird to know this. Maybe knowing the date that you met someone is like more just like what junior hires do or when they're dating. Um, and maybe that typifies Barry's and my relationship in some good ways. But... Uh, two Mondays ago was our 19-year friendiversary, right? So we've been friends for a long time. And um, yeah, I I love him. Uh, So about 10 or 11 years ago, we were in this city called Paragold, Arkansas. It's about as glorious as it sounds. And um, we were on tour, but Barry got asked to speak at this church. And so he decided to talk about uh, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And um, he like brutalize their name, like is is a good message, but he just like, there we couldn't believe the words coming out of his mouth when he tried to say those, and we just lit him up like crazy, I mean we never let him live that down. Uh, first service this morning, Abendego, you know, and uh, he also says Chipotle, kind of the same thing. Um, and then this service, I, I, I gave him grief in the first service. He's like, "I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get it." And he got Abednego, but he said Mesach. Uh, so, just in case you guys missed that, I did, you know, ten years of practice, you'd think he'd get. But anyways, the hooked on phonics didn't work. So, I was about to make a joke about hooked on phonics, Arkansas irony, but maybe I'll maybe that's racist. I'll leave that there. Okay, um, we're gonna get to the text. Let's start verse thirty-two. Let's hop in. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. The Gospel of Mark's pretty short. It's pretty action-packed. And Mark doesn't offer a lot of commentary along the way. And so this is an easy sentence to read by, like just read past and keep going. But we've got all these people following Jesus, and his disciples are astonished, and the other people are afraid. It's kind of a weird... Why are there these varied responses? And Mark doesn't tell us. So I'm gonna throw a couple suggestions out there and these may or may not be it, but just some things to ponder as you're, as you're thinking about that. So in context of what's just been going on, we know at the end of, or just before this in Mark 10, Jesus has had this conversation with this rich young ruler and he tells him he should give up everything. And then he says that the first will be last and the last will be first. There's kind of this upside down kingdom that Jesus has. It's different than what the world uh, sees and perceives the kingdom as. And so he says, who, who will be last will be first, and the first will be last. And uh, then we don't have it in Mark 10, but in Matthew 20, Jesus tells this parable of this landowner who goes out and hires different people throughout the day. Maybe you've read it. If not, it's really cool. You can check it out, Matthew 20. Really great parable. And at the end, he concludes again. He says, the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is a, this is a weird teaching. And so maybe maybe that 's what the disciples are astonished by they 're kind of astonished like, man, this is not the teaching that we expected from the coming Messiah. This is not kind of the kingdom we were expecting or looking for. The other people following maybe this makes them afraid because when you encounter hard truth it it 's scary because sometimes it requires you to make big changes in your life. I was actually having a conversation with my one of my friends this week um, and Talking about how it's hard to like go somewhere where you see poverty when we're not used to seeing it because all of a sudden you're, you're confronted with that truth, that reality, and now you have to accept it. I think it's a lot the same with faith sometimes. Maybe that's why we don't read our Bibles that much. We don't, we don't get invested in church as much. Or maybe when we read scripture, we gloss over things or read them the ways that we want to read them because we realize that if we're actually confronted with, with real truth, and we actually come face-to-face with it, it it requires some serious change. Maybe you don't struggle with that, and I'm so happy for you. That's a scary thing for me, to confront truths that require you to change your life. So maybe that's why they're astonished. Maybe that's why they're afraid. Jesus is about to predict his death for the third time. Maybe that's a cause for their astonishment and fear. I mean, Jesus is just, mar- he's not saying, hey guys, I'm about to die. Um, you know, let's try to figure, he's just marching headstrong into this. He's just, he's been saying, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna, and he just keeps going. He says, I'm gonna die in Jerusalem. He just keeps walking toward Jerusalem. I mean, for the crowd, that could be pretty scary. Maybe that's why they're afraid. They're like, well, do I we wanna follow this guy? That's going get- to Like, what if, what if it happens to us too? Anyways, I don't know. Those are some of my thoughts. You can uh, spend some time with that. I wish Mark would have explained it. Um, I'll give him my notes when I meet him one day. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. But three days later, he will rise. Jesus is, like I said, this is his third big prediction of his death. Mark 8, he predicts it. Mark 9, he predicts it. Mark 10. And this is the one with the most details. Now he starts getting into specifics, like how this is going to happen. And he actually, he he says it's going to be the Jewish people, the chief priests, the teachers of the law who are going to arrest him and accuse him. But then they're going to hand the dirty work over to the Gentiles. He's going to say, well, you guys be the ones to mock, to Uh, oh man, after Beacon Berry for up Ampours, flog and mock and spit on and insult and crucify. You guys do the dirty work. This This is a crazy mission that Jesus is on. One of the big questions I often have in my mind when I read the Gospels and I think about Jesus dying is, why so soon? You know, so Jesus had this public ministry that lasted about three years. And um, I, I'm assuming before that he was doing ministry. I'm sure it wasn't like he's like, you know, 29, not doing ministry, 30, okay, I mean, you know, he's, but this is when he went public. This is like he started his podcast, his YouTube channel, people are starting to know who he is, and he's, his teachings like kind of becoming widespread. Three years, to me, seems really short. Like sometimes I'm like, why not just do it for like 20 years or 30 years? Like, I mean, there's still sick people that need to be healed and people that need your help. Like. Just stick around for a little longer, then you could still do the cross thing. Like that can be the end, just, you know. And that's my really human perspective. What a humble approach. This is for the creator of the universe who's holy, 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 perfect in power, love, and purity to descend to earth, take on human flesh, live with the trials that we face. He he should not be subject to the consequences of death but completely subjects himself to that and and takes on death, this, this brutal death, and he knows it's coming and marches straight to it. And this is what I would say about Jesus, is that Jesus embodied humility by giving up everything. Jesus, Jesus came, and he, we're going to see a bit later, he didn't, he didn't come for what he could get out of it, but he just came to give and give, and he gave up everything. As a leader, there's also a huge degree of humility here in having a really short ministry span and just handing it over to other people. One, one of the things I struggle with, personal confession time, in my ministry role here at FBC, and as a leader here at FBC, is... Is just giving the reins to other people and saying, "Hey, you run with this." You, I, I know it's so important to do that, but it's it's hard. And the reason it's hard is because I know in my mind that I'm I'm better at everything and know better about everything than everyone else, right? If I hand the reins to someone else, it's like, um, remember, I'm saying this with a lot of humility, no just Um But you, I, I just you know when you you're passionate about something and then someone's like else is like, "I'll do it," and you're like, "Ah, oh, man, okay," you know. Um, that's that's a tension there. I think, uh, you know, I see parents struggle with this with teenagers. Teenagers who grow up and they start to get them to do things and, and take responsibility. And, you know, and it, it's hard because you're like, wow, you know, is that, is that really how I would do that? I mean, think about Jesus' position. I mean, he's starting this thing called the church. And uh, this is just my own thoughts. These are my own thoughts and commentary on this. But he's starting this thing called the church. And all of a sudden, he's just going to hand it over to the disciples and say, hey, you guys run with it. I mean, let's take a look at who a couple of those people are, and you'll see why this would be a difficult and a challenging thing, a real act of humility to hand the reins over to these guys. Read about James and John. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I've taught on this a bit before. This is a really, this is like... If you want to study, like, how to pray, this is a really good, like, how not to pray. This is probably the best how not to pray passage in the Bible. When you approach the creator of the, when you approach the almighty God, you don't run to his throne room and say, hey, 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 whatever I'm about to ask for, you do. That's like, go up to someone and say, hey, will you do me a favor? What do they say? Well, well, what is it, right? And you're like, no, no, can you just, like, commit before I tell you what it is? Or, you know, when you have those friends who are like, hey, you free on Wednesday night? And you're like, oh, I think so. What's up? Oh, sweet. Can you babysit? You know, it's like... This is not how it works with God. This is a terrible way to pray. I don't know if this is your prayer life where you go and just saying, God, whatever I'm about to, like, God, whatever I'm about to ask for. I you, you know, this is not how prayer works. You don't just walk into the courts of Almighty God and say, whatever I'm about to ask for, just do it. It's a terrible approach. Very arrogant. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Now, note that question, what do you want me to do for you? Because it's going to come later. It's an interesting question. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. No, no, nothing too big, Jesus, just like, you know, the two most important seats besides you. You don't know what you were asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Jesus says, you guys have no idea what you're asking. And it's, it's true. When Jesus predicts his death here in Luke 18, we see right at the end of it, verse 34, it says, the disciples still didn't get what Jesus was talking. When Jesus said, it's so funny. This is like some of his plainest teaching. I'm going to die and come back to life. And they're just like, yeah, well, what do you mean by that? You know, so we, don't, we don't quite get it the disciples don't get it. The, the, James and John still think that Jesus's goal is to set up an earthly messianic kingdom where there's going to be there're going to be thrones and, and political power and economic power and they're just like we want positions of authority. We want to be successful people who have positions over others. We want to lord over others. We want we, we want to we want something out of this Jesus. It's great that you're about to die and all that and you're about to give up everything, but what what do we get out of it? Is essentially Their question, And it's true that they don't know what they're asking for because even still, (laughs) I have no idea what that would look like to have those positions. And Jesus says, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm I'm baptized with? The question he's asking here, and I've taught on this a bit before, the question he's saying is, guys, I'm gonna go through a lot of suffering. I've been talking about it. You're not quite getting it yet, but I'm gonna go through a lot of suffering. Can can you drink of that cup? Can you go through that baptism? Can you follow in those footsteps? And they say, we can. To their credit, It's true, they do. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. And I love the response of the other 10 disciples. They see James and John have this interaction. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. You ever notice that when you're driving, if you cut someone off, you're like, oh, whoops, it's an accident. I got to start, like," And you, like, give the wave. You're like, oh, I'm so sorry and stuff like that. But when someone cuts you off, you know, it's like, what an idiot. Where would they get their license, you know? Waving at them with one finger, freaking out, yelling in your car. They're so stupid. Like, what kind of moron drives like that? Meanwhile, your kids are like, hey, dad, while you were freaking out, you ran a red light, you know? Um, <laughs> it is easy To to look at the same struggles that other people have as us and kind of explain our way ours away, but to just be I mean, as if the other disciples when they're asking James and John are asking this question aren't like, oh man, we should ask you know, and one thing I love about this story being in here is, um, okay, so in the first week I talked about how you know Mark wrote this gospel, but probably his main source was Peter. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. And I I just imagine this conversation, this isn't in scripture, I imagine this conversation where Mark's writing, he's like, you know, Peter, there are a lot of things in here in the other gospels that kind of like make you look like an idiot, dude. Like, do you have any stories about the other disciples saying stupid stuff? And Peter being like, oh yeah, I got this one. So good, I would never ask a question like this. And so they're, they're indignant because, you know, how would James and John make the same mistake that we would make? Jesus called them together and said, guys, come on. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. He's saying, What you're talking about is sinful practice. What you're talking about is a worldly view of success. People who don't understand the gospel want financial success, power, position, authority. They want people to look like that's where they are validated and find their success. And Jesus says, not so with you. Instead, he turns this upside down again. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, guys, this just isn't what my kingdom's about. And you gotta know this if you wanna be a part of it. Jesus came to be a servant of all, even though he's the maker of all. And he came to give his life as a ransom for many. I want to unpack that a little bit. You give a ransom when something's been taken and you want it back. I sang this song earlier, Sons and Daughters. Great song for those who've worked at camp, maybe a little overplayed. But, um, you know, God created humankind to be his sons, to be his daughters, to be in relationship with him. And we become abducted and kidnapped. We get taken away and stolen by death and by sin. And then Jesus Christ comes and pays this ransom with his life. And doesn't just free us and say, okay, you're free, run away, go wherever you want. He frees us to now come under his care and to be his children. In both cases, you're not your own. And In 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, it talks about this idea where it says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You are Jesus Christ's children. You, you're the children of God. You belong to him. You are part of his family. And, and it's important to understand that, that, that that's who you are because you've been, you haven't been liberated to go and, and pursue your own dreams and desires but to come as a child of God and say, God, lead me. And, and James and John give us a good example because James and John neglected humility by wanting everything. They came in with their own ideas of success, their own selfishness, their own desires, and they said, this is my agenda, rather than abandoning it and embracing Jesus' agenda. J- Jesus just gave us an example of giving up everything, and they say, cool, us too, except the opposite. We want everything. Third section. Then they came to Jericho, uh, probably heard about Jericho and like kids Old Testament Bible stories, maybe watch the Veggie Tales where Joshua like brings the walls down. So they like rebuilt it a little bit to the south. Um, this maybe doesn't matter too much. It's probably like a bit of a resort city. So like imagine maybe like rich tourists hanging out around there. Um, that's kind of the crowd around Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples uh, together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, Commentary by Mark, which means son of Timaeus. Thanks for that commentary. Why couldn't we get commentary on the afraid and astonished thing? Was sitting by the roadside. I'm going to give him my, my kind of editorial notes when I meet him one day. Was sitting by the roadside begging. So we've got this blind man named Bartimaeus sitting by this roadside begging. And um, to give you a little bit of a mental picture of what, how I view this, have you, have you all seen that really old Robin Hood movie? Like they're all animals, the animated one. Yeah, I know it's a Baptist church. You're allowed to talk if you want, but yeah, a couple? Okay, well, if you haven't, there's this really sweet old Robin Hood movie. Robin Hood's a fox. It's like from the 70s. Um, And uh, he dresses up as a blind beggar a bunch. And there's this scene hopefully this is nostalgic for you, where the sheriff comes in and like destroys his kid's birthday party and then Robin Hood comes in, blind beggar with his cup out and the sheriff throws a coin in and it makes the cup go down and then all the coins bounce out and he steals them from blind Robin Hood. Um, anyways, this is, this is as, we're, as I'm teaching this, I want you to know that that's what I'm picturing. Bartimaeus is this blind fox that the sheriff of Nottingham has just ripped off, okay? So Bartimaeus, sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That statement, Jesus, son of David. Remember Peter early on in the gospel of Mark, he made this claim, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Meaning you're the chosen one. You're the the king. You're the ruler. You're Lord of all. You're the one that spoke and creation leapt into existence. You are my everything. You're ruler and I am subject to you. This This is the same claim by blind Bartimaeus here. He calls it son of David. He's saying the one that was prophesied of in the Old Testament, the one who would come as a descendant of David and liberate all of humankind, son of David, that's you. And then he says, have mercy on me. And this is a really cool statement here because we talk about grace and mercy a bunch here and I'll unpack that a little bit. Grace and mercy are both things that we don't deserve. Grace is something that you don't deserve that's good and mercy is liberation from something bad, that you do deserve, so it's a liberation that you don't deserve. So it's like this. Grace is like me giving you $100 even though you've done nothing to deserve it. Mercy is you owe $100 and me saying, you don't have to pay it. It's, both are unfair, but in a way that works out really well for us. And so he doesn't ask for, he doesn't say, hey Jesus, I'm entitled to sight. Like I should be able to see. Like I've, I've done all these things. I've donated money. I've been a good person. I like served. He just says, have mercy on me. This is my lot in life. Probably a good chance he believes that as a result of sin in his life or his family's life, that he deserves blindness, and that's why his blindness came. We know that's not true, but he doesn't say, I don't deserve this. I'm entitled to more, but he reaches out to Jesus and says, just have mercy, please. Even though, even if I deserve this, please just take this burden from me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So the crowd starts rebuking him. They're saying, like, bro, like, you're embarrassing yourself. Like, you look ridiculous. You're just this blind beggar who's, like, you know, who's probably a fox. But, uh, you know, yelling out and, like, making a nuisance. And, and these probably well-to-do people who are in this crowd listening to Jesus, they're just like, man, like, you're kind of wrecking the vibe, man. Like, just could you just could you just do your thing over there? Could you just go, like, here's a couple coins, just, you know? They're rebuking him, but he shouts. He's shouting out all the more. Have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. Again, that question, it's so interesting, as if Jesus doesn't know, especially in this case. I mean, pretty sure it's pretty obvious. He heals people. There's a blind guy, probably pretty obvious that that's what he's, he's looking for. And he asked James and John, what are you looking for? Two very different contexts. In one context, they're look, he's looking for something good. In another context, they're looking for something not so good. But he makes them say it. I think there's a huge connection between, you know, what's in our heart and what comes out of our mouth. And scripture talks about that. You know, the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. And, and I love that Jesus just makes, makes them spill it out. Jesus says, show me what's in your heart. Let me hear it. T- tell me what's going on inside. And then let me respond, either by teaching or by extending mercy. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. And Jesus is like, oh, really? I had no idea. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Jesus extends mercy as Bartimaeus calls out and asks for it. He shows him what's in his heart. Bartimaeus knew that he wasn't everything. Bartimaeus wasn't trying to get everything but Bartimaeus, uh, Bartimaeus attained humility by declaring that Jesus is everything. Bartimaeus knew, this is my lot in life. This is the hand of cards I've, I've been dealt. This is it. And he came face to face with that reality, but just reached out to Jesus and said, Jesus, it's not about me. It's not about what I can do. It's not about what I can get. It's about just proclaiming that you are everything. And he just picks up and just starts following Jesus. It's... it's It's amazing. I love kind of the different pictures of humility that at least for me that God's kind of been showing me through these sections because certainly I know that's something that I can be working a lot on a lot of my life and just following God and how he represents that. This is one of his most incredible attributes that this God who has power and authority and sovereignty over all created things extends humility and, and offers us ways that, that we can practice that and we can follow him in that. Our world gives us some really, I think, short-sighted definitions of humility. A lot of the times, I believe that we view humility as the opposite of arrogance. So we look at arrogance. Arrogance as being so full of yourself and boastful and proud and thinking, and telling people how awesome you are and that kind of a thing. And so we often, we often say, well, humility is the opposite. And I think that's a really rough definition for humility because I think that plays out in two main ways. The first one is a false sense of humility where we realize, well, I still want the validation that arrogance would call for. I, I still want people to recognize me and respect me. I still want to feel good. I want to be valid. I want to find my identity in how people view me and in how the world kind of serves me and what, what I get out of this life. I still want that, but we figure out a way to put on a false sense of humility and just hide that. You'll find that sometimes where you make humble statements, but you know, really, it, it, it just withdraws more praise and accolade. I mean, maybe I'm alone on that, but that, that's an easy trap to fall into. That, that's, that's not humility. It kind of looks like the opposite of arrogance. Another way that we miss humility when we think it's the opposite of arrogance is we equate humility to insecurity. Well, if arrogance is having too high of an opinion of yourself, maybe in insecurity, I should have a really low opinion of myself. Maybe I should say, I'm nothing. I'm worthless. I'm useless. I got nothing to offer. I'm no good at anything. I'm ugly. I'm whatever. And that's a really unfortunate view of humility as well that I think our world has adopted in a lot of ways. I think that insecurity and arrogance are essentially the same thing. And here's what I mean. In both of them, you miss the reality of who God sees you as. God sees you in a certain way and offers you that view of yourself and offers you a path to be who you can be. But in both of them, you choose your own lens rather than God's lens. In arrogance and in insecurity, the, the, the solution... To ridding yourself of either would be the same. To humbly come before God and say, I surrender and sacrifice my own view of myself and of others, and I want to take on your view and your lens because we know that that's a true picture. That's a true view of reality. And this this is what I'll say about humility in that regard. Humility means embracing who you are and who you can be through Jesus. And when I say embracing who you are, this isn't some feel-good, like, positive self-help message, like, just be, you know, be the best you. What I mean is this, is humility is coming before God and saying, you tell me who I am, rather than me formulating my own ideas or looking to the world to tell me who I am or who I should be, but help me understand who I am in your eyes, and as a result of that, show me who I can be through your power. This has uh, kind of positive and negative sides to it. Kind of in a negative light, you start to realize for who you truly are in a negative. You realize, I'm a helpless sinner who, who is without God is, is, is lost. I'm, I'm kidnapped. I'm, I'm a slave. I cannot do this on my own. I have shortcomings and insufficiencies and I'm selfish and I'm, I'm driven to sin time and time again. But... I'm also someone that God created in his image, who he loves, who he invites to be his child, who he invites into relationship with him. Ephesians 2 says that God created good works in advance for us to do. Before you're even created, these good works for you to do and he gives you the gifts and the abilities to carry them out. You don't arrive at those conclusions through arrogance or false humility or insecurity. You arrive at those conclusions through true humility saying, God, you show me and teach me who I am And then from there, who I can be through what you can do in my life. I have a lot of questions for God one day when when I meet him. Um, You'll have to like wait in line because I'm going to take up a lot of his time. But um, one of my questions is, what happened to Bartimaeus after this? Like what what was next? Said he followed Jesus. And uh, we see in uh, one of the gospel accounts, I think it's Luke might be Matthew. You can check later. Let me know. But uh, it, it says that as a result of this incident, Bartimaeus started praising Jesus, and others, as a result of that, also began praising Jesus. People came to know God and experience faith because of what they saw happen in and through Bartimaeus' life. So he started following Jesus. I'd love to just know the story of Bartimaeus Has he followed Jesus. How much did he influence the kingdom of heaven? How, what impact did he have on the early church? Because he was able to just come before God and say, God, I don't want everything. You know, I'm not trying to look for everything. I don't think I'm everything, but I'm just embracing the reality of who you see me as and who I can be if I just surrender to you and I submit to you and I ask you to have mercy on me. I mean, I'm sure his story is awesome. I hope it is. It'll be really disappointing one day if it's not. But um, I think that's a cool way to think about what God can do through our lives when we have that sense of humility. It's not about wanting everything. It's about giving up everything and realizing that Jesus is everything. And then in him, we can find who we truly are and who we can be because of his power. Because when we're weak, he's strong. When we don't have enough, he's got it all. Let's pray together. God, you are so good. And uh, man, I'm overwhelmed thinking about you coming and humbly serving us, who in no way deserve that. But thank you for that. I pray that we would take that lead and serve you humbly and pursue you as everything that we need, God. We love you so much. Amen. Well, thanks for being here on the long weekend, guys. We'll see you next week.